Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 381. I think it's really helpful to think about what do you want to be the best at very specifically and in what region of your city, of the country, of the world, and, and focus your, your team on that true north. Being the best at something very specific in a particular region. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Who loves doing paperwork? No one. Sorcery is an efficient online AP automated solution for the food service industry and restaurants, large and small, are using Sorcery to provide a scalable solution to help them create efficiencies and ultimately grow their business while impacting their bottom line. To learn more, head to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com. And be sure to mention Restaurant Unstoppable to get your first month free. Toast POS is one of the most recommended POS companies on the show, and their company has grown to over 500 employees since 2013, and they're servicing thousands of restaurants of all shapes and sizes. Toast was designed for restaurants only and connects the POS system to online ordering, gift cards, loyalty, labor, sales reporting, kitchen-grade ELO hardware, and handheld tablets to empower your staff. To learn more, head over to pos.toasttab.com slash unstoppable 2017. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Jen Pelka. Jen, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am. Yes. Thank you. Yes. That's what we like to hear. And I got to shout out. Uh, thank you to Charles Belilis for making this connection. Your husband, he was a great guest, man. I, I love that conversation. Uh, let's give the listeners a little taste of who you are. After a decade of experiencing leading branded events, influencer marketing, content strategy, and media relations in-house at Open Table, Guilt Taste, Tumblr, Chef Danielle Blood's iconic restaurant, Danielle Jen Pelka, launched Magnum PR in 2015. This past January, Jen took all of her experience helping other restaurants succeed and put it into opening her own restaurant and champagne bar, The Riddler, located in San Francisco, California. And I'm super excited for this conversation because what I've learned in almost 380 or over 380 episodes now is that people can, from all walks of life, can get into this industry and be successful. And there's so many unique skills that are needed today uh to really be competitive uh that you know you no matter what lane you're in you can bring that unique strength to the to the you know to the table and find the right partners and make something really great so i have a feeling that's going to be the story with you uh i can't wait to dive in but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us perfect amazing well thank you so much for the introduction i would say the mantra that i use all the time is you got to fake it till you make it. Fake it till you know, make it. Fake it till you make it. If you don't know how to do something, you can probably figure it out. And nobody else knows that whatever you're working on, you have no idea what, 
what the heck you're doing. I love it. And I feel like so that, I've, I've yeah. made, a, made a pretty good career out of faking it until I make it. And I feel like that's one of those quotes that kind of gets some controversy. Some people like don't believe in it. But the truth is like you're going to start and you're not going to know what the hell you're doing. But once you start, you start learning and you build up that momentum and you've got to be a little bit of a faker in the beginning to, you know, break down those barriers and just get the, the ball rolling. I, I totally agree. Awesome. So, okay. Um, where did it all start with you? Kind of take us back to the moment where, um, I guess you, you had a direction and you continued with it. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, my first job in the restaurant industry was working as a stage at Danielle. Um, so many years ago, probably 12 or 15 years ago at this point, um, I was fresh out of college. I went to Stanford and studied, philosophy of science and history of science. So totally, totally unrelated. And I was working in New York at a hedge fund um, in like a technical recruiting job. And I loved my job, but I had really fallen in love with restaurants and chefs and the whole experience of dining out at restaurants. And I was very lucky that one night I was out at a bar. I was at Schiller's, which um, RIP, uh, was my favorite bar in the Lower East Side. Um, I was there with a friend, and we were we were regulars there. And there was a guy sitting at the bar who was reading a book called The Perfectionist, which was about Bernard Loiseau, who was a Michelin three-star chef who lost a star and committed suicide. And so there's this guy who's reading this book, and it's you know, very technical, insidery, chefy, And we struck up a conversation and it turned out that he was a sous chef at Danielle. And um, I mentioned that I had heard that you could do a stage, that you could, you know, basically work for free in a kitchen. And would he let me come trail one day at, at Danielle? And he said, yeah, sure thing. Come on in. So I called a couple of weeks later and he said, come on in on Saturday, 10 a.m., uh, black shoes, black shirt. Uh, what was it? Black, black shoes, white shirt, bring your knives. <laughs> so I showed up with one knife from Crate and Barrel. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what a knife kit was. I didn't know, you know, really anything about the restaurant industry and was lucky enough to get to trail on the, on the line. I was on the canopy station for the first night and um, just absolutely loved it. And at the end of the night, I begged to come back the next Saturday. And so I ended up coming back Saturday after Saturday after Saturday for a straight year and a half. Wow. Um, and work. It was insane. It was incredible. That's was crazy. Really, really incredible time. So wait, prior to this moment, what was your culinary experience? Zero. Zilch. That blows my Not mind. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. I feel yeah. like me, even me, like I would be so intimidated uh, or anybody I'm sure in this industry would be so intimidated to walk into a restaurant like like Daniel Bal- Baloo's. I almost afraid to say his name because I know it's 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 like, but uh, anyway, yeah. to go into that restaurant into with no experience and just to fake it till you make it, like you say, and just show up and learn, um, it, it takes a lot of guts. Or maybe it didn't take yeah, any guts because you didn't realize like what you're doing yourself into. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I fully understood the gravity of it. Um, but it was a classic case of it until you make it. That's awesome. for sure. Beautiful. So that you said you were 22 when you did this. Yep. Okay. Yeah, right out of college. And let's not to date you or anything, but how many years ago was this? So I'm 35 now. So okay. So 13, 13 years ago. 13 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you started staging for a year and a half. Um, and yeah. 
let's talk about kind of what direction you started going to or, or in after getting this experience. Yeah. So, um, during that year and a half, it was incredible. I mean, I had an opportunity to work on nearly every station on the line. Um, I think one of the, the reasons why I had such a good time and, and was able to sort of progress through the stations is that I was working a full-time office job during the week and then in the evenings going out to restaurants. And then on Saturdays, I would go to Danielle and was so excited to be there. Whereas everybody else who was working there was working there, you know, five, six days a week. And by Saturday I was pretty tired. So mm. I think my energy level was always something that was pretty welcome to them on, you know, on Saturday at 10 PM where I was like scrubbing those, those counters as hard as I could. Um, and so I just absolutely loved being there. Um, and on the weekends I started, um, specifically on Sunday, my, in my extra day off, um, I started doing some, I started a blog called Gastronomista, which still exists. Um, my co-founder, Emily Arden Wells, still runs the site and she uses it primarily as a cocktail blog. And it's a really, really great site. I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, and so we started doing that. And then I also started um, personal chefing. So going to people's homes, putting together tasting menus and wine pairings and cooking for them in their apartments. And I really had no idea what I was doing, but again, fake it till you make it, put together a website and got the word out and got a bunch of press coverage and um, made a little side business of it. And then, so from there, I um, started that business. Then I started working on a cookbook proposal and um, in the first of two times that I was fired from Danielle, I was fired <laughs> because Danielle found out that I was working on a cookbook and he's like, who's this girl? Well, who does she think she is? She's 22. She's writing this book. Get her out of here. So I, I, after a year and a half of Saturdays, I was kicked out. Um, and it was this like heartbreaking moment. Um, a lot of tears, but um, it was good for me in the end because I stepped away, started focusing a little bit more on the personal chefing side of things. And then eventually a couple weeks later uh, or a couple months later, ran into Danielle at an event. And I was like, chef, I used to work for you. You fired me. Would it be possible to come work for you again? Uh, I would love to be your research assistant. He's like, research assistant. What is that? I don't know what that means. We don't have that job here. And I said, Oh, well, your, your restaurant, and your, the industry is growing and you might want somebody to help you with creative projects. So we talked a little bit about it. And then I eventually came on full time to Danielle um, and worked for him as his research assistant, helping him with all sorts of projects that he was working on. Um, things related to, you know, new product creation. So he was doing a spice line. So I helped with that. And he, at the time, was opening DBGB, which was this awesome restaurant downtown on the Bowery, very innovative at the time. Um, and one of the things he wanted to do was collect copper pots from chefs all around the world um, and have them displayed almost like museum style around the restaurant. And so I... Um, reached out to all of these chefs on Danielle's behalf and collected all of these pots into my office. And so I had this, <laughs> this giant, like these, these um, stacks and stacks of pots lining, you know, all of the walls of my office um, from, you know, Thomas Keller, Paul Bocuse, Michael Mina, all sorts of chefs. And, um, and that was like one of the fun first projects wow. that I did for him in that capacity. Yeah. So how many years elapsed really from, from the time you first went into stage the first day to being the uh, research assistant? 
and being fired twice and all this stuff. I know, it's so (laughs) funny, right? Um, So I stashed for a year and a half, and then I took about a half year break, and then went on full-time probably when I was about 24. Okay, so like two Um, two to three years, you were side hustling. And what were you doing? What was your full-time office job during all this? Um, I worked at a hedge fund called D.E. Shaw, and they had a scientific research group, and I was a recruiter for scientists. So I would spend my time um, reaching out to computational chemists to see if they wanted to come work for the company and then push them through the interview process and all of that. So So, totally, totally unrelated. Is it safe to say that you're using a lot of those skills that you developed through this office job, uh, the researching, the organization of that all? Were you applying those unique skills, these research skills to just a different niche? Is that kind of... Did that Yeah, I think so. That's cool. I think so for sure. Uh, and I also think, like, as you said, side hustle. I think there's something really powerful about having a side hustle. Oh, yeah. I think, like, having an office job, you know, you're, you're paying your bills, you're getting your work done, crossing your T's, dotting your I's, but then having something on the side that is something you're really, really passionate about mm. is very powerful. Absolutely. Very, very powerful. Absolutely. Because you've got to start someplace, and you're not going to just hit the switch and, you know, have all these accolades and have all this attention. It, you, it really takes a lot of time building that momentum. I mean, Restaurant Unstoppable is a perfect example of that, too. I mean, this is, I'm going to my, my fourth year now. In the first two years, like, I was working, like, you know, 60 hours a week in a restaurant, and just trying to find whatever time possible to, to get this thing off the ground. And yeah, like it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, so for you again, no. two, three years before you were able to get your own things going. But um, man, uh, so much we could talk about. You have such a unique experience. So at what point did you kind of start getting out on your own? So the first job that I took that was like right after Danielle, I went to the Guilt Group to Guilt Taste, which the Guilt Group is, you know, the online shopping site, um, very well known for flash sales. And um, the woman who I worked for, Shan Lynn Ma, she started Guilt Taste, which was this online gourmet shopping business. Um, and we did a whole host of editorial things as well as, um, you know, selling things like oysters that you can get overnight or caviar champagne. And so I headed up editorial there and eventually took over as GM of that business. Um, and there I had an opportunity to work with amazing, amazing writers and editors. So Ruth Reichel, former editor-in-chief of, of Gourmet, was our editorial director. And Francis Lamb, who is, you know, in many times James Beard Award winning editor and writer, was our features editor. And so we worked with lots and lots of amazing writers to create very cool original editorial, everything from recipes to features to um, interviews, those kinds of things. So I was there for about two years. Absolutely loved it. It was so much fun. Um, and then from there, I went to Tumblr, where I had a very cool job. Um, my title was Food and Drinks Evangelist, which is kind of a crazy, silly title. But um, I was basically the community manager for the food and drinks vertical. So I worked with all sorts of interesting people to get them to use Tumblr, to understand Tumblr, and to advocate for Tumblr. So everything from really cool chefs like Mario Batali or the team at Roberta's um, to great publishers like Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, Sever, the New York Times, et cetera, getting them to use Tumblr. And then also identifying really amazing artists who are already on the Tumblr platform who are doing um, artistic creation in the food space and sort of highlighting them and, and showcasing them. 
Okay. So that was an opportunity for me to meet amazing restaurateurs and members of the media in this really cool and interesting capacity because Tumblr is its own weird little world. So what unique skills would you say were going on or what unique skills were you learning and developing at this point that allowed you to kind of, uh, I guess, carve out a niche and start doing your PR thing? Sure. So I think the biggest thing is I was able to make really, really amazing connections with people who are truly at the top of their game at every publishing house, every magazine, every restaurant group, because at the time Tumblr was such a hot platform that I would send an email saying, Hey, I'm from Tumblr. We'd love to meet with you and show you how to use the platform. Well, and basically everyone would get back to us and say, yeah, of course I want to meet. Um, so it was, I would say that the most tangible thing were relationships with really amazing people at the top of their game. And the sort of skill was really around networking. Yes. Uh, I'm so happy you went there. Offering a hand. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the things yeah. I wrote down and I was like, I know this is going to come out of it eventually, but your network is your net worth. Uh, and when you do find out what lane you belong in, when you do find out whatever unique skill you have and you have that network established, you can bring that skill to so many people and really just laying down that, that, that framework, getting that, that network, uh, just knowing people is so powerful. Yeah. Knowing people, but people also have to like you. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's I think, an important thing to remember that you have to fulfill the promises that you make. You have to be reliable. You have to be fun. You have to be cool and interesting. You have to understand what people might want out of the relationship with you. That's, you know, things that we think about all the time on the PR side is when we're pitching stories, we have to understand who we're pitching to, uh, what their publication's point of view is, and what this particular writer might be working on or interested in. And, you know, they're, they're pitched all day, every day, all sorts of angles and all sorts of content. But their their writing their work is sort of the expression of themselves and so you have to kind of get to know what is going to make them feel really proud or really excited to put their name behind okay and so there's the networking piece but then there's also kind of like reading the room and understanding what people might want out of the relationship hmm i like i feel like this is going to turn into an episode that's going to be like just nuggets of knowledge around building your brand and things you can do to build your brand, uh, being likable, one of them growing your network, one of them. Um, and what's th this last part you were talking about of just kind of getting that, that clarity in what makes you special. Is that kind of a good way to summarize? Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, this is something we work with all of our restaurant clients with on the Magnum PR side is helping them to understand like what is the very specific message they're trying to tell and reminding people always to simplify. Like the thing that's the hardest, I think for restaurants, let's say San Francisco is like, if they're just a California seasonal ingredient based restaurant, like what does that mean? What's really powerful to say is to say like, I'm a fast casual Cuban restaurant or I'm a, um, you know, I'm a barbecue restaurant with Aisha Curry and Michael Mina, like being able to summarize things into a super brief soundbite so that people know exactly what you are and defining um, really, really thinking seriously about what your brand is, what you, how you want people to perceive you. What is the little soundbite that you want people to say as they're walking by your front door? Yeah. And it sounds like I'm picking up too in these little sound bites, these short and sweet, uh, taglines, whatever you want to call it. There's also a little bit of a unique selling proposition in there too. What separates you? From oh, absolutely. Awesome. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, definitely. I mean, like if you don't have a super strong 
brand position, it's really hard for you to generate the kind of word of mouth that is essentially viral because people you, you like, okay. So at the Riddler, our goal is to be the best champagne bar in the country. It's just that short. It's just that snappy. Our goal with Magnum PR is to be the best restaurant PR agency in San Francisco. And I think it's really helpful to think about what do you want to be the best at very specifically and in what region of your city, of the country, of the world, and, and focus your, your team on that true north, being the best at something very specific in a particular region. And I've heard somebody say, I can't remember who it was or where it came from. If it's not, if you don't have a shot of being number one, then it's not worth doing. Uh, and totally that, agree. Awesome. I love it. So there's a couple of things I want to dive into that you've mentioned up to this point. Um, you mentioned being likable and I feel like that's a skill, uh, you know, emotional intelligence. That's a skill, uh, that you can learn or just how to win, like in the, how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie. Like there's, you can teach these skills of how to be likable. So, uh, First, what unique, you know, I guess, uh, skills or um, I guess habits or things we can do in our life to increase our likelihood of being likable? Can you drop any on us? <laughs> Great question. Um, my, I would say the number one thing is like listen to people and be curious about what they are working yes. on. So one thing I always tell my team at Magnum is if they're meeting with a writer and they don't know, they're like at a standstill in the conversation of like, Hey, it's great to see you. You're at a party, run into some big, important magazine editor. Hey, how are you? I like your shoes. Like it's always good to compliment people. I always like, always like find something that they're wearing that you think is cool. It's always a good conversation point and it always makes them feel great. So like, Oh, cool shoes, like cool shirt, whatever. Talk about that for a minute. And then always ask them, so what are you working on these days? Because then that person um, gets to talk about something that they're passionate about, that they're interested in, that they're excited about. And then for us as publicists, we have the opportunity to help them out. So if somebody says, oh, I'm working on holiday gift guides for a story related to really cool innovations in wine right now, then immediately we can think through who are the clients that we're working with who are doing things that are wine related that could fit into a gift guide. And so instead of, you know, randomly talking about people that we're working with, we've allowed the person who we're networking with to tell us what they want out of the relationship. Beautiful. Awesome. And it's cool. And it's like people, people love talking about themselves. So just get other people talking about themselves and then they'll walk away and say, man, that was such a great conversation. So from that, that, uh, I pulled out the first thing when you're trying to network, meet new people. The first thing is to find a way to break the ice, uh, find something that's interesting about them. Maybe it's their shoes, their shirt, anything mention it, compliment them. That gets the conversation going and then ask about them. Listen to them first, seek to understand, then seek to be understood is what I'm hearing from you. Absolutely. Awesome. I love it. Any other nuggets you want to drop on us on the topic of being likable or any resources you can share before we move on? Uh, I don't know. I think it is. A, I think it's a, a pretty inherent thing for some people, but I, I do strongly believe that you can train yourself mm-hmm. or team members to be more likable. And a lot of it really just comes down to being warm, friendly, yes. 
and and listening. I yep. really think that that that's really sort of the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. And if if you are listening to this right now and you want to be more likable, you want to learn about how to win people over uh, Dale Car- or Death Dale Carnegie, I believe, is the author. How to Win Friends and Influence People is an incredible book that's been around for. I want to say since like the forties or like something. A, like, yeah, it's so it's, it's such like an important the, book. It oh, is yeah. a book that it's a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. And they That's touch on the a lot of this. I reread every oh, year. Yeah, totally yeah. worth it. And, uh, the way I like to think of it is, uh, like be, think like a dog. When, when you walk into a room and you go to a, like a, a street yeah. or like a, a new person's house and they have a dog, that dog is instantly your best friend. Right. And that's yep. why we love dogs because they love us. If you want people to love you, take an interest in them, love them first, give first, then, then you might be able to get something out of it. But like, you know, also be yep. genuine, authentic. You don't want to be just, you know, a narcissist looking to, you know, <laughs> yeah, like bend relationships. But, um, okay. yeah. Also like, go also ahead. I think an important one is like, don't shit talk. Like, try to keep the conversation positive. Yep. Think, like, or if something's going on in your day and it's like such a bummer of a day, don't talk about that. Move on and, and focus on the positive. You know, it's so funny. We hear all these little things when we're children growing up. Like, don't say anything. If you have, if you're not, wait, what is it? Like, if you have nothing to say, don't say anything at all. Like, all these little things are so true. And we just take them for granted our entire life. Um, awesome. So, okay. You also mentioned, uh, let's see here, uh, getting clear about your message. Uh, making things simple, uh, unique selling propositions. We mentioned, um, I just want to, I don't know. There's so many potential directions to go in. What else do you want to talk about? Mm. Uh, great, great question. Actually, what do you want to talk about? I have a question for you. Um, so okay, we mentioned, cool. what do you want? Um, let's see here. Like, what do you want to be the best at? So, I guess the question I have is how do we, what's the process for getting clarity on what our purpose is and how we can get clear on what our brand's going to be? Like, is there a process you take right. your clients through to kind of get that clarity? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that it's a super formalized process, but I do love to talk with our clients about, you know, broad vision for what they are working on and to, talk through all of the really fun, exciting, specific details that they're really, really passionate about. So things related to the team, related to their location, related to their menu, um, the overall experience they want guests to feel, the design, the graphics, um, the web presence, the social media presence, all of that kind of stuff. And I think the the most specific question that you can ask yourself is, what do you want people to say about my business? How do you want people to describe it? If they're going to describe it in one sentence. And that's probably like all of the airtime that you're going to get in most cases. Of, oh yeah, I went there the other day. It's the best sushi restaurant in San Francisco. Or I went there last week and their frozen yogurt is incredible. You know, really thinking about what are the things that you want people to remember. And then I always recommend putting like branded touch points around them. So it's like starting with the end in mind, starting with a destination of what you want people saying. And then what can I do to get there? How can I make that happen? Yeah. And what can you, what are, what are like visual things that you can do that can make them stickier and more memorable for people. Okay. So for example, with Suvla, my husband's restaurant, which I know you just talked to him and he gets major extra points for recommending that you talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) So he's a good guy. Uh, uh, But their frozen yogurt is 
really delicious Greek frozen yogurt and they serve it in those paper Greek coffee cups that you get from like, uh, you know, a, a bagel vendor on the side of the street in New York, those blue and white iconic coffee cups. And so because they are in these cups, they get photographed all over. They're all over Instagram. Um, he's kind of like co-opted that visual and it ties directly back to the Greek element because it's frozen Greek yogurt and um, it's really simple and people love it and they love sharing it with one another. It's fun. It's approachable. It's like artsy and designing in some way, but it's still like total. It's, it's quirky and cute and mm-hmm. it's very, very memorable. Yeah. So if you want to be remembered for a specific thing, like think of what that thing is and how can you make it more remarkable? Wow. How can you make it more fun? So what I'm picking up from you is it starts this whole, this whole process of getting that clarity is it starts with finding out what you want people to say about you. So you have a destination of a thing to work towards and start living intentionally to, to, you know, you can do things every day to, to get towards that goal, to get people saying these things about you. And you just start being intentional and taking action and really thinking through and being proactive, not reactive. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, Absolutely. Anything else you want to add to that? No, I think that's good. Okay, cool. So moving on, man, I can't believe we're already at a half hour. That means that this conversation is good. I mean, we're, it's moving fast. That's a good sign. (laughs) Um, so we got to leave time for talking about your vision and how the Riddler came to be. But I mean, I feel like there's so much more knowledge in you with all of your experience. You might be able to, squeeze in one more topic before we really start pulling apart how you, you know, the processes you went through to make this vision into a reality. So anything else that comes to your mind that you think is worth discussing? Well, I would say on the the Magnum PR side. So we, um, I started the company about two years ago as a consultant, I was working out of my apartment and I had left a job at a startup that, um, that I was really unhappy at. I was, I was head of marketing for a small startup. I was there for about three months and I very quickly realized I did not want to be there. And so I left. Um, and I went out on my own. I had never owned my own business. Um, but I knew that I had some friends who might need some PR help. I'd never technically done PR before either. Um, but Suvla specifically needed some PR. So I started doing that on the consulting side and figured I would probably go back to another office job and, um, started doing PR for Suvla and they had some friends that needed PR and then some other friends, then some other friends, and other friends. And so I really was doing this as a consultant, just solo brought a few people on very, very part-time but fast forward to a year and a half later, we're now a team of 11 wow. and we have over 25 restaurant clients in San Francisco. Um, and I feel really confident that we are seen as, if not the best, one of the best PR agencies in San Francisco focusing on restaurants. And I think a big reason for that is that we've had that laser focus on building out a client list that we're very proud of, that we really love. Um, whose restaurants are really cool, really exciting, really interesting, very cutting edge. And we have been really disciplined about focusing specifically on San Francisco. So we get requests all the time to go to the South Bay, to the North Bay, to different cities, to wine country, et cetera. And we keep saying, even to Oakland, and we keep saying, nope, we're going to focus on San Francisco. We're going to focus on San Francisco. We're going to focus on San Francisco. And then similarly, we get a lot of requests 
to do PR for consumer packaged goods or wine or experiential things or weed. We get a lot of medical marijuana requests. <laughs> there's definitely there's definitely a market for that. I'll That's a market what. to lock in <laughs> while it's still hot. I mean, we get the oh, own that. There's a major opportunity <laughs> ahead. Yeah, we get a lot of those. Um, there's a lot of crossover in the edible category, I realize. Uh, nice. um, and, um, but we've really focused entirely on PR, not events, not social media, not branding, nothing else, PR for San Francisco-based restaurants. And I think because of that, we have a, a very, very cool client list. And we now have relationships with editors on the national side, as well as very trusted local relationships where people know exactly what they can come to for us. Beautiful. So much like we counsel our restaurants to, to create a product, essentially, that people know exactly what they're going to get and that it is focused and they're better at it than anybody else. That's what we try to do yes. on the PR side. Thank you for coming full circle. It was, that was the, what was at the forefront of my mind listening to you talk. I was like, this is like the advice we just discussed earlier. Uh, you decided to be the best at PR in San Francisco. Like you found your niche and you were the best. If you can't be the best, it's not worth doing. And that's a great example that you just share with us. Awesome. Uh, so, I guess I'm curious, uh, how did you develop all these PR skills when you decided to open the PR, uh, uh, business, were you faking it till you make it till you made it then? Or did you pick up a lot of skills along the way in the 10 years prior, uh, working with all these other companies and developing these skills along the way? Um, there was definitely a lot of fake it till you make it, especially on the business entity creation side. Um, the, the skill around storytelling and networking, um, I think were a little bit more inherent to me. Um, but I didn't really know how to set up a business or a consulting business or any of the tax implications or any of those kinds of things. But I found people who were experts in those areas to help us out. There you go. Um, and also like if you make a mistake just, and you don't know how to solve it find somebody who does and pay them a small amount of money to fix it. Mm. My other, the, my two things are fake until you make it and you got to spend money to make money. Absolutely. And surround um, yourself with experts. And I mean, that come, ties into yeah. spending money, but you're going to spend more money doing it wrong and then trying to fix it. If you just spend money up front and do it right the first time. Yeah. And also time is money. Like mm-hmm. I, if, if it takes me two and a half days to sort something out and I can pay somebody else, even a thousand dollars to do something that's two and a half days that I can have back for myself to focus on the things that I know that you're good. I'm at. <laughs> uniquely good at and yeah. that I'm passionate about. And I love, I mean, I think especially one of the hardest things I think as a business owner is to constantly remind yourself to focus your time on things that you are uniquely good at and that you're passionate about and that you love. There are mm. a lot of like unfun parts of being a business owner but find people who find those unfun parts to be fun, mm-hmm. hire them, have them do it, have them do it better than you could. And then you spend your time as much as you can on the good stuff, the stuff yeah. that you love. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people will argue that you're, you want to be, you want to be well-rounded and develop a lot of skills. And I don't know if I necessarily am on board with that. I think I lean more towards what you to share with us, find out the one thing that you like and enjoy doing and that you're good at and then become the best at it. And then people will come to you and then you can, you know, everybody kind of has their own lane and then you, you together as a whole are far more effective. Exactly. I love it. I totally agree. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So when did this vision for champagne bar, the, the Riddler come into frame for you? 
When did you first start thinking yeah, about that? Yeah, great question. So when I was working at Guilt, so this must have been 10 years ago, I went to a champagne tasting with Veuve Clicquot. And one of the things that they told us about was this idea of riddling. So the widow of Clicquot, the woman who ran Veuve Clicquot as a very young widow, um, had they were creating champagne at the time, so sparkling wine in the region of champagne, but the, all of the wines were very cloudy. And so she didn't want a cloudy wine. She wanted a crystal clear wine like all of the other wines she was drinking. But because of the process of winemaking um, in sparkling wine, there's all of this yeast and sugar and fermentations happening in the bottle. So it's a very cloudy process. So she figured out a way to, um, to clarify the wines. She literally took a tabletop and put it down and cut holes in it and then put the bottles in them. It like, down with the neck, down into the table, and then turned them every day until all of the sediment dropped to the bottom and then essentially chopped off the top. And then voila, they had um, this crystal clear wine. And so that process of turning the bottles is called riddling. And riddling is still done at at every champagne house in Champagne. It's done at many sparkling wine producers around the world if they use that same method. Um, And many of the best champagne houses still hand riddle, meaning that they turn them by hand every day. And it's a very thoughtful, careful process. And so at this champagne tasting, uh, I heard about this idea of riddling. And I said, one day I'm going to open a champagne bar and it's going to be called the Riddler. So uh, this is like, you know, one of 15 different restaurant ideas I've had swimming around in my (laughs) head. And then fast forward 10 or 15 years later, um, Charles, my husband and I have been regulars at a little sushi spot in Hayes Valley, which is the neighborhood we live in in San Francisco. And across the street is this beautiful little corner cafe that's lined with windows, very, very small. It's about 500 square feet. And like the moment that I set eyes on it, I said, that is the Riddler. That's Mm -hmm. where it needs to go. And one day I'm going to do it. And it was kind of a pipe dream and, you know, mostly a joke, but then, um, so one what, day, what, the, how long ago was it when you actually, when you saw the location and you committed to it? How, how long ago was that? It was about, I would say four years ago. Okay. So four years ago, you found and the then, location. What things do you start doing? Yeah. So then, um, two, so two years ago, we saw that the, that this particular cafe was on the market. It was on Craigslist and, um, I immediately went to go see it. I saw it the, the same day I made an offer on the space the next day, the offer was accepted the following day. And then it took the, the former tenant, the owner over a year to actually like follow through on his end of the agreement and give over the keys. So he basically like accepted the agreement verbally and then reneged on it for over a year. And it was a period of begging and pleading and crying and me literally going in and like essentially being on my knees, like begging, like, please, please, please let me have this. space. (laughs) This is my dream. So you literally um, manifested destiny. I love it. That is so cool. Uh, So what, things were, did you start to do early on from manifesting in, you know, having this vision, finding a location, knowing that they accepted the offer, what things were you doing to set yourself up for success? So first thing I did was write a business plan. So I put together a business plan around the idea of the Riddler that was very focused on sort of the overall look and feel and vibe of the space. Um, and the overall concept. So I wanted to do a champagne bar with over a hundred champagnes by the bottle. Um, I knew what I wanted it to look and feel like sort of like a little Parisian cafe. I wanted, um, black and white photos. I wanted vintage champagne buckets. I wanted beautiful glassware. Um, 
I wanted sort of black and white and gold to be the color palette. Um, and so put together a very visual document and um, included a lot of things related to the brand vision and the experience and the way in which we would market the space and then started talking to everyone I possibly knew about the possibility of investing. And um, I kind of stumbled upon the idea that I could reach out specifically to women and that we could generate a, an investor base that was entirely um, women focused. And so I talked, I, I put together a list of every single woman I know knew who I thought might have $5,000. And that's a lot of women. So it was like hundreds of women and I would meet up with them mostly just like for drinks to catch up and see how things are going. And then near the end of the conversation, I would slip in, Oh yeah. And I'm working on this champagne bar and we're, I'm only opening the investor investment up to women and our, our unit started $10,000. And literally every woman who I talked to, as soon as I said that we were only going to have women investors, their entire body language changed. They were like, oh, wait, well, maybe this is something I'm interested in. Whereas almost none of them uh, had ever invested in a restaurant before. And um, by focusing on specifically female-led investment, we've created this incredible community of people who are behind the project. And it's been a huge part of the story that we tell and that people tell about us, that this is a place that's run by women. Um, we have 33 investors, all of whom are women. Um, only one of them ever invested in a restaurant before. Um, we've got one of one of the people I'm most proud who's in, invested is Ruth Reichel, who's, you know, as I said, my, my sort of former mentor, former editor-in-chief of Gourmet, and just an incredible, incredible woman. Um, I have several of my former bosses, but then I've also got just like friends who just, I didn't realize had a little bit of money that they could put in. Um, I've got a lot of women who are entrepreneurs, some of whom are self-made, some of whom have like inherited money. So, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big swath. Our women run from in their early 20s to their 70s in age. Um, and it's this incredible, incredible community of people who have come to support the restaurant. And so as a result, we get a ton of women or women's groups who want to come to the space mm -hmm. because they see it as this like girl power spot. Awesome. And it is. And, so can you speak um, to the psychology to that was going on behind all this? Why? Um, I mean, was, is there, do you think any psychology behind this? Oh yeah, definitely. Of course. I mean, I think investment and specifically restaurant investment has, has been considered a very male um, opportunity for, you know, for many years, hundreds of years. And I think that there is nothing more powerful than a group of women who are talking about something that they are excited about, proud to be a part of. Um, and it, it also like, it was a pretty timely opportunity because of this year's election and, we were opening in January and I think a lot of people wanted to truly like vote with their, with their pocketbooks. And, um, that's an opportunity we've provided for them. And plus it's like, it's a fun way to spend some money and potentially make a lot of money, um, by putting, you know, putting a couple thousand dollars into a champagne bar. Yeah. I'm curious. always having a table and always <laughs> knowing that you, uh, always knowing that we're going to treat you a little more special than, than everybody else. I'm curious before approaching all these women with this, uh, this, this, I guess uh, your pitch to invest in this, this wine bar, what was your mission? 
to be the best champagne bar in the country. Okay. And anywhere in and this, that's, that's still our mission. Yeah. Anywhere in the mission, does it talk or address the all women, uh, I guess, support in all women's uh, investment? Uh, do you play on that in the mission at all? Empowerment? Um, not explicitly, but it's just something that's so inherent mm. to what I believe in and the kinds of people that we hire. And I'm like, as a manager, I'm somebody who's very, very hands off in a lot of ways. And I believe in hiring smart, successful, motivated, self-motivated people who are passionate about their work and giving them a lot of opportunity to take on big media projects and succeed in them. And so I think that that is, yeah, that's just a big part of it Awesome for us. Yeah. Like with listening to you talk and hearing what you had to say, some thoughts are going through my mind in a lot of like the psychographics about like when we go to eat at a certain restaurant, we're asking ourselves like, what does this restaurant say about me? And how does this make me look mm-hmm. in the eyes of society? Yeah. The same exact thing is going on with your investors. Like what does investing in this restaurant say about me and my values? And it sounds like you're, I mean, I don't know if it was intentional, but it sounds like you're playing off that, like you know, getting these people to buy into the concept of just uh, this empowering idea that, you know, we can do this all as women. We did like, we are like, you know, like we're, we're capable, like not to suggest that you wouldn't be, yeah. but you know, like that's, that, that can be really powerful. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's very cool. Awesome. It's yeah. It, it turns, it turns the champagne bar into a mission driven mm-hmm. organization. Awesome. Good and stuff. People really want to be a part, a part of it. And they feel really proud to bring people there and to, yeah, for it to be something larger than just a social spot. Yeah. And, and something else you mentioned, you kind of touched on it too. The the people that you're having invest in this restaurant are also your target market. I'm assuming going into this, yeah. you were assuming that the majority of your, your guests were going to be women. Um, so how did that affect this whole thing? Well, now we we attract such a huge huge community of women to the restaurant. I would I would really encourage any males who would like. To Why wouldn't you want to go to the community of women? There. I know. That's what I always say. Like it's like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, right? it's like when you when you walk into the dining room, it's normally it truly it's like eighty to ninety percent women. There are often times when the restaurant is completely full with like sixty people, and they are all women, um, including our staff. So. Um, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And I always want to make sure that the women who are there feel really comfortable. But I will say if I were a single guy uh, looking to meet like beautiful, interesting, smart, self-sustained women, I know exactly where I would go and hang out. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell all my airline um, pilots who do a lot of traveling where to go when next time they have an overnight in San Francisco, for sure. Um, there you go. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So we got some more time. Um, I guess I'm going to pass it over to you. Anything that we haven't discussed up to this point uh, in your journey of opening your successful restaurants that you would like to share with us, any challenges, any aha moments, any really just unique lessons learned along the way? Um, yeah, such a great question. I would say the the most important things I think are, are really around this branding piece of figuring out what you want to be best at um, and then hiring people who are really passionate about that same vision mm-hmm. um, and enabling them to, to be able to be really successful in their roles. I mean, you know, this is, this is also not to say that like, I haven't had missteps. I've, I hired some people early on who weren't the right people um, and 
they are no longer with the company and that's fine. I mean, I think recognizing when you've made a mistake, just figuring out like how quickly you can repair it. And I think the hardest decisions are those team related questions of if you feel like somebody's not the right fit or you don't trust them or they're not doing great work. Um, I think you always want to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially if you've taken the time and energy and money it takes to train somebody to be in a role. But, you know, after you have several direct conversations about how they're doing and giving them an opportunity to improve, if they don't, I think you have to have that hard conversation and say, sorry, this is not the right place for you. And then try to step back and figure out why didn't it work? What are the specific skills that this person did not have, even if I liked them? Um, And try to find somebody who has those particular skills. So when you step back to take this look at why it didn't work, what did you discover about the situation? Um, the particular person I, um, I hired early on, uh, it was a, it was sort of a reach. It was a, a management position. Um, and it was a, a real reach for this person. It was an opportunity for them to really step up and take on new responsibilities that they'd never had before. Um, But I think I assumed that they knew a little bit more about the core functions of the job than they really did. And I also assumed that they were more of an expert than I was, but I quickly found out that they were less of an expert than I was and knew a lot less about their subject area than I thought they did. And so like, I like I like I tried to train them on things, but then if there were specific, like if there were specific areas of of the business that they were supposed to be masters of and didn't know how to handle it. It's like at some point you need to move on. Yeah. So hindsight being 2020, what would you have done differently to protect yourself from the situation? Um, you know, I don't think I could have done much more. I think maybe I would have taken more serious references for the person. Um, I, that, that's probably the only thing. And I'm not even sure if references would have told me what I needed to know. Mm-hmm. I think it was just, I think anytime you're opening a business, specifically if you're opening a restaurant for the first time, you're going to make some missteps. You're going to hire some people who are not exactly the right person. And you try to figure out, okay, is this something, is this something that we can correct or do we have to move on? And if you have to move on, you have to have that hard conversation and move on and you feel a lot better afterwards. And they probably do too. Awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's something that a lot of people in this industry struggle with because naturally people who get into this industry are very sympathetic, empathetic, caring people. Uh, and it's hard to be the bad guy sometimes, but you got to tell yourself, you know, by not saying something, I'm not doing this person any favors because they're not in the right lane. They're not going to excel and I'm holding them back from finding the right lane and they're holding this team back from excelling and moving forward. And it's tough, yep. but it's what's best for everyone. Absolutely. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Nobody likes doing paperwork. If you have a growing group of restaurants and find yourself wishing you could snap your fingers and have all of your invoices and AP instantly disappear from your plate, then you need to call Sorcery. Sorcery is used to make owning and operating a restaurant a breeze. Instead of dreading invoices, you'll be delighted to be synced with every vendor. With their new relationships, you can work on negotiating the best price to improve your margins. And Sorcery's biggest 
superpower is that they watch the prices you pay across the kitchen from dry goods to proteins to produce. And when citrus skyrockets, you'll know to update your recipes before you end up kicking yourself at the end of the quarter. To learn more, head over to www.getsorcery.com or find the banner in the show notes. If you mention Restaurant Unstoppable at checkout, you'll get your first month free. Yep. So as you know, one of my biggest responsibilities on the show is to talk to successful restaurateurs and find out what technologies and resources they're leveraging in their business. Well, Toast Tab has been one of the most recommended POS systems on the show since I've started. Toast Tab is a restaurant POS company. That means they were designed to serve restaurants only. And with Toast Tab, you can get online ordering, gift cards, loyalty, labor, sales reporting, kitchen grade, ELO hardware, and handheld tablets to empower staff. No more traffic jams at the POS. I'm telling you, this that alone is worth looking into this technology. Head over to www.pos.toasttab.com slash unstoppable2017 or find the banner in the show notes to learn more. We're back. And the first question I have for you, Jen, is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success. I think I am fearless, fearless, not very afraid of things. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm like, I am fearless and very optimistic in that I'm not really scared to take a leap. And I think that things will work out for the best. And yeah, then I fake it till I make it beautiful. What is your biggest weakness? Mm, Probably that I'm fearless. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if that was going to dive into that. um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I jump in a little bit <laughs> too head first into a new project and don't know exactly what is in front of me and haven't, um, uh, like I often put the cart before the horse. Um, but then again, I just scramble to fake it till I make it and I generally figure it out. And I, th- I you know, uh, that this is something that resonates with me because I feel like I have the same issue where I just go, I just leap and then I slowly back out and go, okay, maybe not yet. Uh, <laughs> like, or just like, yeah. you know, you got to test the waters though. You'll never know what your limits are. Your limitations are until you get out yeah. there and find out what you're comfortable with and then slowly just scale up over time. Uh, I feel like sometimes, yeah, or just like hire people to do the stuff you don't know. How exactly. Like we just said. Yeah. And it might take a while till you can get to the point where you can hire the people, but just keep showing up doing what you're doing and build that momentum and eventually you'll get there. Um, yeah. Awesome. Uh, what is one piece of advice you have for leading others? Mm, I think it really comes down to remembering that people are modeling themselves after you and your behavior. Everything from when you show up to work, when you leave, how you dress, how you act, how you greet people, how you treat people. And, um, remember that if people are screwing up in a particular way, it may actually speak to the mm-hmm. way in which you are behaving. And like, is there anything that you can do to lead better by example? Um, and, and course correct. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it kind of ties into one of my favorite sayings. I say it all the time. That's 
behind every great restaurant, there's a great person. And that's what the show is here to do is to, to make an example of those great people. So you can learn these lessons of how you can lead yourself in, in a way that inspires and leads other people. Um, I love it. Yeah. Great stuff. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? The thing I look for immediately is like energy and enthusiasm for hospitality oriented things. Um, so can I tell immediately, is this somebody who is going to take care of the people who are paying our bills? So whether it's on the PR side, is this somebody who I know is going to be a great partner to any chef that they're working with? Um, or if it's on the restaurant side, um, is this somebody who's going to make a guest feel really comfortable and really great? in our space. Um, so it's like almost a split second. Do I feel comfortable with this person? Do I want to get a drink with them? Do I want to have a conversation with them? Would I be like, okay, going on a road trip and they're the only other person in the car. Um, I think that that is really important. We all work together for so many hours in a day. We want to like the people who are with, but we also have to remember that they're essentially like taking care of the people who are our clients and those clients also care very deeply about if they want to spend time with this person or not, um, whether they're dining at our table or um, trusting them with confidential information as a, as a PR partner. So, so just, that's, I would say the trait that I look for most. So basically how do they make you feel? Odds are the, mm-hmm. the way you feel yeah. around this person is going to be the same way your guests are going to initially feel around this person. So pay attention to that initial yeah. feeling. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you're going to say something else. It sounds like you took a big breath. To I was going to say like, also, I think a lot of times people are like, Oh, they must've just been nervous in the interview. Mm. And it's like, well, I don't really care if, if they come off negatively when they're nervous, they're going to be nervous around guests at a table or around like very pressure focused chefs as our clients. So like they're nervous about around me. They're going to act very similar with, our clients. And so it, it doesn't really matter to me. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Like they've got to have an ease with people. I think. Got it. What's a current challenge and how are you dealing with it? A current challenge is that I cannot figure out how to step away from constantly being on email. I don't know if you feel this pressure, but I feel like I have so many things going on and I'm going from meeting to meeting to meeting. And when I sit down at my desk, I want to do big project based work, but I have so much catch up to do on email every day. And I feel like I'm a slave to it. And if you have the solution, you should write a book and uh, everyone will buy it. <laughs> have you read uh, Tim Ferriss's the four hour work week? Yeah, I have. And it's like, it's such a, it's a great book, but, um, I need to reread it. Is there, what I should do. Does address I should reread that. it and remind myself of how to like offload everything. Yeah. He does address that. Uh, I can't remember it. Some, I can't, I kind of remember some of the, the specific, I think, like, I think he tells you to like hire people like from an email farm in India to like respond to your emails <laughs> and schedule your thing. I, I think he, probably not going to make sense for me. I think he but, uses the automatic response, the re- response tool, like in Gmail, like, yeah. And it's, like the response that you would put, like if you're on vacation or something, but he uses that yeah, all the time. Yeah, I feel like that isn't that's so inhospitable. So I <laughs> yeah, think. Like I know. I as as a member of either like the hospitality industry or the PR community, when a reporter responds to an email of mine and they get an out of office saying, "Sorry, I only check email one hour a day," they're going to be like, "Okay, well, 
thanks a lot. I'm not ever writing to you ever again. <laughs> so it's like, I am essentially in the service business of responding to emails. So that is the job. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's I mean, just more about like carving out time for myself to, um, to find the time to do things. I do. I do struggle with the same thing and what has helped me. And I still could be better. I, I admit I still could be better. I just, I block out time um, where I take care of the most important yeah. things every day, like the three things that need to get done. And I promise, like if, especially if I'm really buried and then I promise myself, I won't even open my email until like one o'clock, you know, and uh, I just crush it and then I get back to whatever it is. But I think, yeah, just prioritizing and, and t- blocking out time is one thing, but have you tried that? I have, but I always find that I'm always, um, my, my instinct is to respond to other people's inquiries first, as opposed to me focusing on my own projects. Like if there's something that I know that is, that somebody could get a quick response from me on, I'm like, Oh, I'll just send one more email. Is there something so, you can I, delegate I, that to? I know a lot of people just get assistance I mean, who just like, yeah, I have one. I have one. It's hmm. like, it still is. I wish I had. Yeah. One I'm going to figure it out by next <laughs> week and I will let you know what I've, Awesome. (laughs) What is one thing besides food and wine or sorry, champagne that your restaurant does really well that separates you from other restaurants? Um, I think we've got really beautiful design Um, and we hear it from people all the time, which is such a wonderful compliment. I'm so grateful and I love it. Um, We, the space is a really old, beautiful cafe that was here for 27 years and the building has been around for over a hundred. And there are all of these beautiful like period details from many, many years and many, many owners being in the space. We've got a lot of beautiful exposed wood and gorgeous old antique back bar. And so we've come in and put some sort of more contemporary touches into the space, but have retained that, that spirit and that history. And I think um, it's one of the reasons why when people come in, they say, Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in New York or I feel like I'm in Paris. And this place is so cozy and, and so comfortable and so beautiful. And that's something that I know brings guests back to again and again and again. What are some things you did in that process of build out that uh, helped contribute to that beautiful design that you could share? And maybe we could try to, you know, I guess not necessarily the actual design, but like, like things you did to get to that point that you could share with us. Was it just outsourcing? Um, sure. Yeah. Great question. I did. Um, I led really all of the design. Um, and the first thing that I did was put together Pinterest board after Pinterest board after Pinterest board of design details that I thought were really beautiful and then did a lot of the sourcing myself. So for example, we have, um, these gorgeous, um, champagne buckets that I've collected from estate sales and, um, and, um, antique fairs and all of these sorts of things. And so each guest, receives a beautiful original champagne bucket and they find it to be very, very special every time. Um, and so I think that was one area that I definitely did not outsource. Like I did not outsource the design because it's something I'm very passionate about. I think I'm good at it. I really love it. It's something that brings me a lot of energy and a lot of joy. And I think that that's reflected in all of those very personal details. Um, and so if I had hired an architect or a designer to do it, I'm sure we would have had a beautiful space, but it would have been different. And So I knew that of the things that I was going to outsource to other people or delegate to other people, that was one that I wanted to retain. And I'm sure if we do other Riddlers in the future, that will also be the case. So the nugget I pulled from that was use Pinterest to get inspiration and really start just kind of cataloging these things. 
Yep. Beautiful. Yep. What's one book we must read to become a better person or restaurant owner? Um, I'm going to say the obvious one, which everyone says, but the Danny Meyer book. (laughs) Um, I'm sure literally like 75% of people give you the same response. Um, But it is is a book I reread every year. And it's a book that I give to managers on my team every time they join. And it's it's kind of the Bible. It's the foundation. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I was reading his the Shake Shack book yesterday. And it's so interesting for a restaurant cookbook. Um, the Shake Shack book is all about culture. It's all of these incredible quotes and really inspiring and empowering and team focused nuggets. And I was like, this is a burger book, but it speaks so loudly to who Danny is and how his operation runs that like the burgers are kind of, they play second fiddle to the overall vibe and experience and the team focus. And so I think going back to the original, going back to um, his book is, it's, it's really important Absolutely. and everyone should read it and they should reread it and reread it again. Can you give us one just nugget from that book, a lesson you took from that book and share it with my listeners? Um, my favorite is the notion of um, turning over the rocks so he has this, this um, he has several stories about it, but he like picks up these pebbles. Um, one of his, his chefs, um, Carrie Heffernan, who was the opening chef of 11 Madison Park, was a fly fisherman. And so the two of them went fly fishing and Carrie would pick up the, the rocks or the pebbles in the stream and would get an understanding of what fish were swimming in the water and what lures they should use. So similarly, um, with our guests, um, Danny recommends to everybody that that the team is constantly picking up and recording and sharing information about our guests with one another, with other members of the team so that we can serve them better. Mm. So if you find out that someone's birthday is X time, make sure you put it into open table and you've got that and you know that forever. Or if they like still versus sparkling water, or they like a particular style of glassware, or they want a booth versus a bar stool or any of those kinds of things. Those are very concrete details that we can use to, um, to enhance the experience of our guests. They're very simple. They don't cost anything. And um, they, those are the sorts of things that help guests to know that they've been acknowledged, that they've been recognized, that they're welcome, essentially that they are in someone's home. And, um, and that's, it's important. Awesome. Thank you for getting specific there. And what is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant and how is that influencing operations, whether it's making you more productive, more efficient, better communication, more profitable? Um, I would say the most important technical tool that we use, it's not really technical, but it is like a technology is Instagram. Um, we have a very, very strong following on Instagram and we have designed the space in many ways to be um promotable on Instagram. Um, I think it's probably not a surprise because I'm so brand focused and, um, and like media focused, but uh, it has been hugely powerful to us. And so the best examples are when we're hosting a really special winemaker or if we're promoting a new wine that we love on the list, I'll put it on Instagram and we will see like literally that night, people will come in specifically asking for that wine. Mm. Um, and we've built a really huge and, um, and active community on Instagram and almost 5,700 people share. 
5,700 over. I mean, it's, it's not like, I mean, it's not that many people, but the but people you, who are <laughs> engaged are like super engaged. Like, I don't know the post, most of our posts get around 500 to 700 likes, yep. which is a huge rate of response for the number of wow. followers that yeah. we have. So we just, the people who we have are very, very engaged yeah. in our brand, which that's is great. A, that's so a great cool. point. That's a great point. I think people, when they're trying to develop that social media presence, they're so focused on how many likes or what's my reach, but they don't focus on impact. They don't focus on the engagement and th- that's where the magic is. And how many people are actually following you that are actually engaging with you is where the magic is. So what advice do you have to, to build that engagement? What do you do? What, what, what intentional things do you do to get that type of engagement? Um, I think the clarity of voice and our aesthetic is really helpful. So we um, we have a, a pretty consistent look and feel to our posts. Um, we also have several branded touch points in the space that are very like uniquely ours. So our tables all say "Hello, old friend," which is our tagline, um, and those. Those we got these like beautiful tables imported from France. Um, they're those classic cafe tables that they have the Riddler and Hello Old Friend, and people photograph them all the time. We also have a mural on the side of the building that's a champagne bottle that's sort of pouring out, and people take selfies in front of it constantly. Awesome. We have a, an enormous sign out front that's on the top of our awning that says Champagne Bar, uh, which people take pictures of all the time. So we have like these very specific branded visuals that people love to take photos of and that if you're scrolling through someone else's feed or our feed, you immediately know what you're looking at. So um, and there are a lot of restaurants that do this well. And we always tell all of our restaurant clients to do this stuff. It's, it's incredibly impactful. And there are ways to do it that are not cheesy and lame. So going back to what we said earlier about what do you want people to say about you? And then what things can you do to make them say those things being very intentional about having things in your restaurant that are almost like a hook that gets you to engage with them, that, that get people saying these specific things about you. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we literally say champagne bar. So if you think we're anything else, like, I don't know how you, how you are confused. (laughs) 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 Uh, Yeah. And there are a lot of people who are not interested at all in champagne bars, and that's fine. We don't need to appeal to everyone. We just need to appeal to the people who are interested in champagne bars. Awesome. We're at an hour and 12 minutes of recording time. Uh, we're a little over our agreed upon time. I apologize, but I, I'm going to ask you one more question. Are you good on time? Do you have a hard stop? No, that's good. It's okay. Um, so you mentioned earlier Danny, My- Danny Meyer is talking about turning over all those stones and collecting all these inf- information, these lessons about your, your guests. Do you track that? Do you have any software, any tools you're leveraging to really control that customer relationship management? We do. Absolutely. We use OpenTable and we record guest notes and codes um, pretty rigorously for as many guests as we can. Uh, we have a lot of walk-ins, so it's a little bit hard to capture information about them sometimes. But anybody who um, who comes in off of the wait list or if we've made any sort of a VIP reservation for them, we record all of that information. So we've got things like investors or um, or any, any VIPs, people who are neighbors, people who are regulars, people who have traveled far to see us. Um, and we try to keep their information. And then the other thing that we do is we have this club called the 100 club, mm. which, um, 
is something that any guest can sign up for. It's very fun. People love it. Um, so if you drink a hundred bottles of champagne, you will be inducted into the hundred club <laughs> and you, I know, and it's a, it's an important goal. And, um, members of the hundred club will receive a bomber jacket, That's awesome. um, embroidered with your name in gold. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we don't have anybody who's gotten there yet. We just opened in January. We opened nine months ago, but we've got some people who are at above 60 bottles. Wow. Um, so we've got some people who will probably make it by the end of this year, which That's is beautiful. pretty incredible. <laughs> and so it's our way of keeping in touch with people. So we, um, we ask for people's email addresses and we add them to a newsletter. Um, we don't do like a standard newsletter, but we do reach out to them, you know, when we're doing special events, um, and to let them know first and foremost about really cool producers who are coming in, um, any kinds of like book launches we're doing, any of that stuff. Um, and so it's a really fun way of, of capturing email addresses for our guests, them opting in and saying that they want to be a part of it. Um, and, you know, and someday people are going to be walking around with their, their Riddler bomber jackets. I can't wait. So are you using a technology to track that and manage that? Or is it, what, is this brought we, up? The, we're the just using, we're, we're pretty stupidly just using Excel. Okay. Uh, we actually use Google Docs. We don't use Excel. We use like a shared Google Doc, yeah. but, um, but we use MailChimp as our email server for things newsletter related. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, okay. We're almost done with all the knowledge you have today. <laughs> if you could go back in time, um, maybe back to January, maybe back to starting your, your own PR firm. Uh, if you had just one piece of, of advice you could give yourself, what would that piece of advice be? To my earlier self before I opened the Riddler or whenever, whenever, I guess you can go, I'll give you free range of time travel. Free range. Uh, the most important thing I think is, I would say um, in your career, work with the best possible people you can Um, work with people who are truly experts, who are beloved in the community, who are good people, who are people who are going to give you a lot of responsibility, um, but truly, truly people who are like best in class in their category. Mm. Um, You know, I've in my career, I've worked with Danielle Ballou. I've worked with um, the team at Tumblr. I've worked with, uh, Ruth Reichel, but then also a lot of the, the other people who are my mentors are people who are just like really, really amazing managers, leaders, etc. And I think it's always just like seek out the people who are the best in their industry and learn from them. That's such a valuable lesson. And and uh, and I want to use you. Advice. Yeah, I got to use you as an example because I mean that's what you did in with Daniel Ballou. And thank you for saying his name. If I ever have him on the show, I'm going to be in so much trouble. I'm going to butcher his name. I know I will. <laughs> um, but like, you have to be willing to work for free. You can't get anything until you give first. And I don't think people understand that. Like you, just, you aren't handed these opportunities. You've got to give. It's a two way street. Before you get anything, you've got to go into situations offering your time for free or whatever it is to get your foot in that door. Um, yeah. And I just want to use you as an example of somebody who, who gets that and gets yeah. that foot in the door. It's so important. Uh, is there anything we didn't get to discuss today, Jen? Uh, anything, a question I could have asked you that you were hoping I would ask a, a, a topic we just didn't touch on any, this is your last chance to leave an impression on us before we let you go. Um, I would just say for any listeners, if they're coming to San Francisco, come see us at the Riddler. We would love, we would love to see them. 
Awesome. And I'll have the website in the show notes. This is episode 381. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 381. And before we say goodbye, who is one person in this industry, somebody you admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today? Call them out. Uh, I mean, there are so many amazing, amazing people I could give um, reference for. But the person who I think you would really enjoy talking with is Evan Bloom, who's the owner of Wise Sons. Um, Evan's a cool young guy who started Wise Sons as, um, I think it was kind of a side hustle for him many years ago. And now they are like the top Jewish deli and appetizing company in San Francisco. They've got six locations. Um, some are bageries and some are full um, Jewish deli style restaurants, like full sit down restaurants. Um, and he's super smart. He's so, so good at branding. Um, he's thinking a lot about growing and building the business. And he has a really strong point of view on team and, and culture. Um, and I think he's doing an awesome job and they make killer, killer bagels. And you said that's wise sons. Wise sons. Evan yeah. Bloom. And uh, it looks like you might be their PR person. So uh, <laughs> if you can help me set that up. <laughs> That's true. I might be. I might be. But I can't pick anyone. Uh, <laughs> but I think Evan, I think Evan, you'll have a great time chatting with him. Awesome. Uh, and just a l- b- one last thing. Just how is the best way to connect? Maybe we want to come join your team for passionate about champagne. We want to come get mentored by you. What's the best way to connect? I would say um, email either through either the websites or connect with us on Instagram. All right. Again, this is episode 381. I'll link back to all the products and services recommend uh, setting the table and how to connect to Jen right there. Head over to restaurant slash 381. Jen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to away from responding to all those emails that you have to share your story with us, to paint a picture of what success looks like and just to be a great example of somebody who fakes it till they make it and just taking that risk and getting out there learning, surrounding yourself with incredible people. So many great lessons in today's conversation. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Oh, thank you so much. So great to be on. Cheers. Yes, that was an awesome episode. Thank you so much, Jen, for joining us today. And so many lessons pulled from this conversation. I love it. Fake it till you make it. Surround yourself with incredible people. Allow yourself to have the influence of these incredible people and You've got to give before you get. And I already mentioned it during the actual recording with Jen, but you've got to give before you get. You've got to give your time. We all have the same amount of time in a day. What are you doing with your time? Go out there. Give your time to somebody to get their influence in exchange. And great things will happen. And just to bring it back to the whole fake it till you make it. You're not going to know what you're doing when you start. But you just got to start. And if you fake it till you make it, eventually you'll learn these things. You'll get better and better. You'll build that momentum and you'll have uh, these unique skills. But you you won't discover these unique skills. You won't discover your strengths and your weaknesses until you get out there and you take a risk and you push yourself. And the harder you push yourself, the more you push yourself, the faster you're going to bring these unique skills and abilities to light. And and it just all starts with taking that risk and just like she says, fake it till you make it. You will find your lane. You will find the, the role that you're that you fill in life. But push yourself and take the risk first. Uh, great advice on branding. Asking yourself, what do I want to be? How do I want to be seen? 
and then simplifying it and making sure that your simple mess, your simple message brings out that essence of what you want to be highlights your unique selling proposition. And you bring that to the forefront as simple as possible. Um, what else came out of this? Uh, just the, the power of being likable. Some great advice on how to win friends right there. Awesome book mentioned. I'll have that in the show notes as well. How to win friends and influence people. This was just a great conversation. Again, thank you so much, Jen, for taking the time to join us. Like always, guys, if you can think of somebody you admire in this industry, somebody who is a mentor in your community, who's crushing it as a restaurateur, somebody we can learn from together, let's get them on the show. Let's share their story. Let's share their advice. Let's learn together. If you can think of a topic, a challenge, something you're struggling with, shoot me an email. Connect with me on social media, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com, Eric Cacciatore on Instagram and Twitter, slash restaurant unstoppable on Facebook. Let me know what your challenges are. I'll get an expert <clears throat> an expert on the show. We'll learn together. I'll ask him the questions. I'm here to serve you guys. Uh, so do take advantage of it. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. I love those reviews. They help validate my hard work so much. And just thank you if you have left a review. And uh, just keep showing up, guys. Just keep showing up. Keep learning. You'll get there. You will be unstoppable. Uh, I love you all so much. Until next time, peace out.